Good morning. The reading for today is from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Carolyn. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you here this morning, even on a long weekend. Uh, happy Labor Day. Uh, my name is, if you're new, my name is Frank. I'm also one of the pastors here. Uh, very glad that you've joined us. If you'd like uh, to know more about Redemption Church, about us, you're going to find out a lot today, first of all, because we're reintroducing this series. Uh, and then, but also, um, at, after the sermon, when we uh, do our last song and we come to the Lord's table, uh, we'll have people standing in the wings uh, available for prayer uh, and available to also answer any questions that you might have, um, any concerns that you might have. And also, you can, you can go to the Connect Desk and see uh, Andrea Hamilton, who's our Director of Outward Focus Ministries. Uh, and also, generally, some of the other pastors are kind of hanging out there uh, as well and so can answer some of your questions. So... Uh, we are reintroducing a series that uh, we were really right in the middle of in uh, at the, kind of at the beginning of March 2020 when COVID hit. So <clears throat> we had done three, uh, the, the series is called Countercultural Convictions, How We Counterculture. It's, it's, uh, a in a sense, it's uh, letting people know where we stand as a church in terms of what the Bible says what Jesus says and how we deal with issues that the culture keeps bringing up and we need to speak into. We were in the middle of that when COVID hit. Uh, if you'll recall, those of you who are with us, if you'll recall, we had done three of the topics up until we got, uh, we got shut down. We had done love, Jesus, and the Bible. March 8th, 2020 was the Bible if you can imagine this, that was Trey Fraley's first sermon that he had ever preached anywhere. And he taught lots of Bible studies and was involved in youth ministries, but it was his first sermon. And so now, of course, the joke around Redemption Arcadia is that he shut the church down when he preached, you know. And so, and that joke has never died. But um, anyway, of course, and you know, you know, Trey has come a long way since then. He's a he's a wonderful handler of God's word now. But um, we shut it down then, and. That first Sunday, March 15th, was actually uh, the Sunday that we were going to talk about gender, and we were going to have uh, one of our founding pastors, uh, a person that a few of you still know, uh, Justin Anderson was going to come in, and he's going to be here next week on, on uh, September 12th to do that very uh, topic. I, I try to bring Justin in at least once a year because um, it's not only important for a pastor to talk about vision, but it's also important for a pastor to keep the history of the church so that we know where we came from. And so I like to have Justin come in uh, as often as possible. So uh, we're reintroducing this series. And today we thought we didn't do this when we started the series back in 2020. And then as the preaching team kind of got together and talked about how to reintroduce this because so many people had asked us to bring it back, uh, one of the things we thought would be helpful would be just one Sunday explaining why we're doing the series. What is it we're trying to accomplish? How is it that we think we will be able to counter the culture? Uh, Luke Simmons says this. He's one of our pastors out in Gateway and the leader of the preaching team. Uh, in, in a world where people are looking for us, meaning the church, Big C Church, in a world where people are looking for us to either capitulate to culture 
or flamethrow at culture, we're trying to do something different. And many people in our churches just don't understand it. So let me, there's going to be a lot of statements up front before we get to Matthew chapter 5. And and I feel like we have to go through them. The first thing is this is not necessarily about what we, the church, or Jesus, are against. It's not necessarily about what we're against. But right away there has to be a disclaimer. Have you noticed in our world in the last 10 or 15 years... We have to speak with many disclaimers so as to not presumably offend anybody who's in the room. I think it's a mess. We have, this is a statement without a disclaimer, as a culture we have gotten way too sensitive, I think. It's just so hard to communicate anymore, but there's a sense in which we have to give these disclaimers. If I say, um, this is not necessarily about what we're against, there's going to be somebody out there who's going to be like, oh, they're going to soft pedal this. They're really not going to ever talk about the gospel. They're not going to talk about Jesus. They're really going to try and soft pedal the Bible, and the Bible is tough and it's truthful and all those things. No, we're not trying to soft pedal it. We're just trying to tell you what we're doing. Of course, we're against sin. Not one amen. We are, we, are, we are against false gospels, which is essentially what this series is about. It's all the false gospels that are out there in the culture right now. Of course we're against things. But it's not necessarily going to be about that. But rather, it's a desire to push us toward the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And to push us towards the fact that that truth of the gospel is better than anything our culture has to offer. It's the, it's, the gospel is really what's good news. The culture has set itself up now to be the good news. And it doesn't want any competition for what they believe is the good news. And so when we speak into what culture is obsessed about, one of their first responses is gaslighting. Why are you, church, so obsessed about this? Well, it's because it's all you want to talk about, culture. Every time I talk about the biblical sexual ethic in church, which is maybe once a year, which is hardly ever at all, I get comments and emails all the time. Why are you so obsessed about this? Wait a minute, I talked about it one time in 52 weeks. You talk about it every single day. Who's really obsessed with this? We are here to have our say on this. And we're going to do it as well as we think we can. But the point is, the gospel really is the good news. Now, for literally centuries, philosophers agreed. Now, this is essentially before we got into the existential, postmodern, romantic philosophers of the last 200 years. But up until that time, philosophers essentially agreed that human beings had three or have three essential needs in their life. Three essential, meaning you can't live without these three things, essentially. Okay? The first one is a need for physical things. Right? So uh, you get hungry. And so the obvious response to that for me would be to go to Zinburger and get a hamburger. Okay? So... You eat. You're thirsty, and so you drink something. You you need shelter as a human being, and so you have some measure of shelter. I would even argue in, in, in Arizona, in Phoenix, especially with how spread out we are, it would be very difficult to live without a car. So we have these, these physical needs. And then the second category is relational needs. Now, Uh, If you read scripture, you know that this is true, that one of the primary ways that we are image bearers of God, that we bear the image of God, is that we were created to be in relationship, not only with God, but also with each other, that we were created for relationship. Of course, uh, a few years ago, Stanford University had this very long uh, and large research project where one of the conclusions was Human beings are essentially relational community self-arranging beings. Now, they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this research to explain the obvious, but I'm glad that I can cite Stanford University to say, yes, we have relational needs. We want friends, we want romance, we have co-working relationships. 
Even if, even if you're just somebody who's hiding behind a screen, you have this need, this yearning for relationships. So everybody has that as well. And then the philosophers agreed that there was a crucial need. Notice it's need, not needs. There, was a, there is a crucial need that everybody has, and that crucial need is only met legitimately by God. That's it. Okay? So physical needs are legitimately met by physical things. Relational needs are legitimately met by relational things. Our crucial need is only legitimately met by God. Uh, the 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal is the one who's credited with saying that every person alive has a God-shaped vacuum or a God-shaped void or a God-shaped whole, however you want to translate that, in your soul, in your heart, that only God can fulfill. That is it. And then Pascal goes on to say, you cannot fill that God-shaped vacuum in your heart, in your soul, with created things. In other words, you cannot fill that crucial need with physical or relational stuff. But that's what we try to do. Without God, that's what people are trying to do. That's what culture is trying to do, and then culture tries to sell everybody else on that. And so we're trying to meet what only Jesus can give us through physical and relational stuff, through created things. And so we create or construct identities, and we think that's going to meet our need. We, we, we chase after a political party or a political philosophy or, or, or a cause. I'm, I'm rereading a book now. I, it's not in my notes. It just came to me. I'm rereading um, American P Kingpin. Who's about the, it's about the guy who created uh, the Silk Road on the dark web. He was considered the Amazon of the drugs and weapons uh, uh, business. Okay? And he's also a criminal. But the reason he created it was because he was obsessed with libertarian politics that the government has no right to tell you what you can do with your own body in any way, shape, or form. And so I'm going to create a way to sell drugs and weapons on the internet that nobody can trace and you can do whatever you want with them. Okay? And he honestly thought that if he could do that, that would fulfill his crucial need. He really did think that. All it did was land him in jail for life because he eventually became a murderer. He eventually had to kill people to protect his Silk Road empire. Um, people, people try to meet this crucial need by creating for themselves an enviable body. It's one of the reasons why uh, we're just inundated with, with ads for um, fitness centers and, and ways to sculpt and shape and rearrange your body. We think that's going to satisfy this crucial need. Some of us think that food will satisfy it. Uh, sex might satisfy it. Not that these things aren't important. It's just you're trying to take something that was for a different need and fill this God-shaped vacuum. Um, social media affirmation is another place where people go. Unfortunately, social media affirmation, research has been done, is just like uh, taking drugs and getting high on drugs. The more you do it, the more you need the more affirmation you need on social media. And then, of course, there's drugs. People try to meet it with drugs. Well, that's essentially what the world, the culture, is telling us. They can meet our crucial need with things that have absolutely no existential fulfilling value whatsoever. And, and, and their goal, as, as I've read and as I've looked, is they're trying to say, this is where you can find euphoria, which, by the way, never lasts. Okay. This is where you can find utopia. Here's another way of putting it. What they're trying to find is an earthbound New Jerusalem with their rules and principles. That's what they're trying to find. That's what they're trying to sell. That's what they're trying to do. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Have you gotten the sense that we're kind of planting a flag here? <laughs> Okay, so here's the schedule after today. On the 12th, next week, we're going to do gender with uh, Justin Anderson. Then on September 19th, we're going to look at the vulnerable. And then on the 26th, we're going to do the biblical sexual ethic. 
And I would just, by the way, I, I have no cautionary uh, mention for the gender one. I think the gender one will be something that everybody should hear. You just had Tyler James, pa our, our, our family uh, pastor up here, talking about a workbook on sexual identity for six to 10-year-olds. So I think you'll be okay having your kids in here for that. I'm the one who is doing the biblical sexual ethic. You might want to keep your kids under 12 out of that one. Okay? And then... Um, on the 3rd of October, we're doing generosity. That'll be a good one because we're going to ask you for a lot of money. And then, um, and then lastly, on the t we really believe in that. So, um, and then the last one on the 10th is on salvation, how, how people are saved. And, and these are convictions. These are convictions. I would call them closed-handed. This is not something that Romans 14 issues of conscience applies to. This is, these are convictions. And the reason they are convictions is because we take these topics and we strain them through the, the, the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word. In other words, Jesus is the authority. Jesus is the authority. Now, why is that? Because he was raised from the dead. That's where he gets his authority. If we believe the resurrection, then, then we should believe his word, the Bible, and that's where we get our authority. So here's, here's a very basic and simple question for everybody that everybody should have to deal with. Is Jesus raised from the dead? Is he raised from the dead? How you answer that is going to then determine virtually everything else. You can't say he's raised from the dead, but he has no authority over this part of my life. And him being raised from the dead is a demonstration that he is creator, and he is the author of creation, and he is Lord over creation, and we are created beings. So we have to answer that question. So if you don't believe in the resurrection, you don't believe in his word. Now here you go, again, uh, I'm just planting a flag here. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you don't believe in his word, then really, in many respects, you and I don't have anything to debate. We really don't. And here's why. Let me just, let me just, I, I just rather we had a cookie together and we were friends. <laughs> Honestly. Okay? Because I've been in these, these circular debates and stuff before, and you go absolutely nowhere. And here's why. If the authority that I live under comes under the resurrected Christ and his word, the Bible, and the authority that you live under comes from what culture tells you and what you're telling yourself, we're never going to get anywhere. Can't we, just, can't we just find something that we have in common and, and have a cookie and be friends? Let's talk about hockey, okay? We can get excited about that together. And if you don't like hockey, I'm sure there's something that we could have in common. It doesn't mean we don't have to be friends. Unfortunately, if you've noticed, in our culture today, it means we can't be friends anymore and we're going to unlike you and unfollow you and all that other stuff. That's a problem, too. Okay? There is such a thing as common grace in this world. We're going to talk about that as well. But here's the difference between this authority that I would live under as a Christ follower and the authority that you live under is that, here you go, at some time in my life, the Holy Spirit moved in my life and changed my heart from that of somebody who doesn't believe to that of somebody who does believe, who now wants to chase after what is the will and the wisdom and the holiness of God. And I'm going to read what the Holy Spirit has inspired, his scriptures, and what the, Holy, the work that the Holy Spirit did in Jesus in raising him. And so somebody who hasn't had that experience with the Holy Spirit, they're not filled with the Holy Spirit. I, the Holy Spirit is in me. The resurrected Christ is in me. Somebody else who hasn't had that experience, who doesn't know Jesus, it's just not going to work. It's just not going to work for us to debate. We're going to talk past each other the whole time. And we'll both end up very frustrated. And again, I'd like to just be friends. And I like cookies. So... We at Redemption Church, all across the 10 congregations of Redemption Church today, and for the next five weeks after this, we are laying our cards on the table fully for everyone to see. 
not hiding anything. And for us, the Bible gets the final say. We believe in both common grace, and again, we'll talk about that, and we believe in the genuine threat of sin, but the gospel of Jesus has the last word. And if you don't believe in Jesus as Savior and you don't believe his word, I honestly, if you don't believe those things, I honestly have no expectation that I'm going to be able to persuade you of anything. So in a sense, by the way, I'm glad you're here. I welcome you, and we welcome your questions. We, we want to be able to talk to you. We want to be able to help you. We want to be able to minister to you. But if it's all about you sitting there saying, all right, ma'am, convince me. I can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that work in your life. So if you want to say, convince me, say it to the Holy Spirit and see what happens. Because it's the only one who can change your heart. I can't do that. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the power to do that. But I can be used by God to talk about this from a biblical perspective. And so for the believer in Jesus, those of you who do believe in Jesus, this series is where we stand. And we stand here in good times and in bad times. We stand here whether we're in exile or a remnant or whether it's for the glory of the new Jerusalem to come, or whether it's in the midst of persecution here on earth. And so ultimately it boils down to a pretty simple question. Who or what is your God? What is it that you worship? What do you worship? That's first and foremost and primary. Is Jesus raised from the dead? Is he your Lord and Savior? Is it Jesus? Or, be honest with yourself. Your Lord, your God, that which you worship, is it yourself? Is it the affirmation of culture around you? Oh, here you go. This is a big one. Is what you worship and what you serve, is it the fear of being rejected or canceled by the new purity culture that we live in that dictates to us what is acceptable for you to think and say and do. Is that your God? A lot of people out there, that's their God. I want to abide by this new purity culture that we live in. I never want to say the wrong thing. I never want to think the wrong thing. I never want to do the wrong thing. Talk about legalistic. There's no grace whatsoever in that. Jesus offers us grace. Pastor and author David Platt writes this, we chase all these things, these idols and false gods, thinking that we're free and that they will somehow make us free. But we are blind to our own bondage. For, for in all of our running to serve ourselves, we're actually rebelling against the only one who can satisfy our souls. The good news of Jesus is that the only thing that can satisfy and fulfill us in the way that we're looking for is Jesus. That's our crucial need. So let's get on with it. Perhaps the most countercultural teaching that Jesus did was actually the Sermon on the Mount. I call it the SOM in case you're wondering. You'll see the initials up there. But all of it is, is countercultural, but the, it's really starkly clear in the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically, especially in the first few verses, verses 1 through 12, which is what Carolyn read for us. So let's read through those more slowly and I'll make a comment on virtually every verse. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are humble enough to understand that they have a sin problem and therefore, because of their sin, which were all sinners, they understand that they fall short of the glory and holiness of God, and so the poor in spirit admit their culpability. And then verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourn, mourn what? Mourn that the sons didn't win the NBA championship? What, what are we mourning? I had to bring that up again. What are we, and by the way, the Cardinals are about to start, so that's exciting. Um, what are we mourning? Okay, here you go. 
They're mourning their sin. Blessed are those who mourn their sin. They mourn what their sin has done in their relationship with God. They mourn what their sin has done in relationship with others. They mourn because of what their sin has done in, to themselves. I got to tell you, I can get, I can get caught. I'm, I'm already naturally bent a little. Some of you know, you know, for me, um, every silver lining has a cloud. I'm a glass half empty. In fact, it's not even half empty. It's almost all the way empty, even though there's, anyway. <laughs> I, you know, I, I have the tendency to go down that road, uh, maybe a little bit too far. I do, I, it just, I think back on my 62 years, and I'm like, I regret that, I regret that, I regret that, I regret that, and I mourn that, those things. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, a lot of people look at that word meek and they immediately hear synonym weak, not weak. That word means strength under control. In other words, somebody who's meek is actually humble because they have some ability to have strength or power, but it's under control. And it's, and it's in other words, my friend Tim Mon, I've mentioned this before, uh, they, even, even with their power and their strength, they desire to be small. It's, it's a function of humility. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who thirst and hunger for righteousness are those who seek after God. They seek after His holiness, His will, and His wisdom. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul writes, Do not be foolish. Don't be a fool, but instead understand what the will of God is. Those who are followers of Christ should be pursuing and trying to understand what God's will is, not our will. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Uh, those who treat others with kindness. In other words, they don't flame people on social media and they don't flame people in the marketplace either. I know that's hard sometimes. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, it's not that the pure in heart aren't sinful. They are, but rather they know where their redemption is, and that's the cross. They're pure because they have given their lives to Jesus. Verse 9. Blessed are, those, are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, these are not pacifists, but rather these are those who actively seek peace and reconciliation. That's their thing. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is one of the many times that Jesus proclaims the reality that if you follow him and love him and live this Sermon on the Mount life, you are going to face persecution, oppression, hatred, and you'll probably be canceled. And then verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Every time I read that, Jeremiah comes to mind. They were so mad at what Jeremiah had to say, they threw him in a well. That must have been fun. So think of it this way. What the Beatitudes are doing here, what Jesus is doing is he's deconstructing their cultural norms and then reconstructing them into what it is supposed to be. Okay, now lots of people today in our culture are into deconstruction. We love to deconstruct stuff, but we deconstruct with no plan. We deconstruct without any reconstruction, and so we're just into tearing stuff down and burning it all down, and that's it, and we have no plan after that. That's kind of a problem. Jesus deconstructs, but then he reconstructs. It's not just what he's against, but what he is for. So... Here's another way to think about this text. I'm going to take us through something. And by the way, I tried this out on our Arcadia pastors, and they said, yeah, you should go ahead and do this. So here's, in a sense, what's not being said explicitly by Jesus in 2021. So I'm applying this now to our specific context here. And the reason I want to do this is because I want to show the drastic contrast between the call of God on our lives and the call of culture on our lives. So you look at verse 3. Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The world or the culture says this. 
Affirmed are those who glory in their pride, for vanity is the currency in our world. Sermon on the Mount, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Culture, world, verse 4. Adulation is for those who revel in their sin, celebrate their sin, for they will be adored on social media for their audacity. Sermon on the Mount, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The culture, verse 5. Righteous are those who yell the loudest, for they win their arguments by drowning out any opposing viewpoint. Sermon on the Mount, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Culture, verse 6. Smug and haughty are the self-righteous who firmly believe that they have made it in today's purity culture, for their satisfaction comes from thinking they know best. Sermon on the Mount, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The world, culture, verse 7. Ironic are the cruel and merciless, for they somehow believe or think they are loving. Sermon on the Mount, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. World or culture, verse 8. Blessed are those who pass the culture test 100%, for they will never be canceled. That's the new salvation. That's the new cultural salvation. Sermon on the Mount, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The world, culture, verse 9. Satisfied are those who cause antipathy and division, for that is the only way they can secure power. Sermon on the Mount, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Culture in the world, verse 10. Self-assured are those who persecute Christians because, well, they're pretty easy targets. Sermon on the Mount, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when, you revi- when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The world and culture, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when you revile others, persecute them, and speak your truth to them on account of their faith in Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is worldly praise and exultation that, well, actually has gone in an instant like the mist of your breath on a chilly morning. So why? why, why would, Frank, why would you do this? Why, why, why morph Jesus' Beatitudes into the world's Beatitudes? Because we need to see the contrast. It needs to be clear to us what's going on. And, very simply, if there's no difference between what Jesus offers and what the culture offers us, what is the point? Why are we here? Why bother? Why proclaim the gospel? Why have a church if there's absolutely no difference between Jesus and the church and the world. Why? Why are we here? Wouldn't you rather have that 10% back every month that you're giving? No amen there either. Okay. (laughs) We have no legitimate purpose if there's no difference. And Paul says that, by the way. Paul says that in his first letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 15. We are to be pitied above all if this isn't true. We are to be pitied above all if this isn't true. So we point out the differences between the call of the culture and the call of the gospel because there are differences and these differences matter. God says it like this in the Old Testament. Woe to those... By the way, you never want to be in the woe category of people when God is speaking, okay? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil to those who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Here's what Paul says about it in the New Testament. Do not be conformed to this world, to the culture that surrounds you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to discern what is the will of God, and by discerning, 
you know what is good and acceptable and perfect. And let me just say, there are so many people who are so determined about this, so many people outside the church, and disturbingly also so many people inside the church who want the church to look and believe and act just like the world. We need to be relevant. But if we do that, what, I, again, I, what's the point in any of the? I'll go work at Sprouts, you know? Arranging tomatoes in the produce section. Be happy to do it, okay? Scripture clearly tells us that we're going to struggle with the culture and with the world coming at us. This is clear. Here's just two of the verses in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Oh, I'm going to start following Jesus and all of my problems are going to float away on a cloud. That's heresy. <laughs> it's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus even says in John 16... I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That word translated tribulation can be translated as trials, suffering, challenges, and temptation. All of those things. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He's the answer to our crucial need. And it's not that we're looking for ways to assault the culture, but rather we are called to be faithful to God and to live, as Paul says, a life that is worthy of our calling in the gospel. He says that many times in his letters. Walk in a way, that's an ancient Greek colloquialism for live your life this way, walk in a way that is worthy of your call in the gospel. Doing that will counter the culture. And it doesn't mean that we aren't ready and aware of what the world is doing. Gary Wells writes this, our culture is determined to make righteousness strange and sin look normal. The world is determined to make righteousness strange and sin look normal. And that's why I recommend books like these. I've mentioned maybe one or two of them before, but here's a whole screen up there of these five books, Cynical Theories by Pluckrose and Lindsay. I know I've mentioned that before, and there's at least one of you that is reading it right now. Uh, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman. It's an amazing book, and he's an amazing guy. Love Thy Body and Finding Truth by Nancy Piercy. And then this book I just keep coming back to over and over and over, and neither of these guys are Christians. In fact, Jonathan hates an atheist. Okay? The Coddling of the American Mind. Anthem Lights singer Alan Powell writes this Scripture is so counterculture. Christ was counterculture. It's not like we're supposed to be weird or anything, but as we grow closer to Christ, we won't care about the things of the world as much. As a believer, you're just going to be countercultural. That's the way it's always been. And it will always continue to be that way. That's why it's important for us as believers to encourage other believers that it's okay to be that way. So here's how we want to end today. We want to end by talking about uh, the four meta-truths that the Bible teaches us about the relationship of God and righteousness with us and then that relationship to sin. And by the way, this is something that I, as I understand it from the preaching collective, which I'm a part of, um, at some point, every Redemption Church is putting this in their message today. So here you go. First of all, we at Redemption Church, we of course believe in particular grace, saving grace. There is particular grace. It's the grace that saves uh, an individual where you, you come to the realization that Jesus is Lord and Savior and you need to give your life to Him. But we also believe in what's known as common grace. Common grace. And common grace is a good thing. It's a good thing. Without common grace, things would be a lot worse than they are already. See, originally creation was holy and perfect and beautiful. Read Genesis 1 and 2. And of course, we were and are all created in God's image. We are all image bearers of God. And there's a whole 
body of, of discussion we can have about what it means to be an image bearer of God, which is really good and really important. I mentioned one of the things today. We, we are relational. That's one of the ways that we bear the image of God because God is relational. And much of that goodness, even, even though there's original sin in Genesis 3, but much of that goodness is carried over past original sin. And so God also in His common grace Believe it or not, he holds back much of the darkness and destruction we could actually experience in this world of sin. We do. In other words, things could be in this world could be a lot worse. Imagine that. Things could be a lot worse. Second, we also, however, believe that we are fallen. Original sin has corrupted every one of us. And as a result of our sin, everything, not just us, but everything, all of creation is disordered, it is spoiled, and it is in a state of degradation. The world is not good and getting better, it is bad and getting worse. So having said that, I would also argue that we are not evolutionists, but we are devolutionists. Because sin and its effects are real. You experience them every single day in your life. And to deny that is just denying the obvious. And then third, we, the church, in the midst of all of this, we are called to be a faithful witness for Jesus in the gospel. That's our call. What is your vision for the church? What's your mission? Here it is. We are called to be a faithful witness for Jesus in the gospel. We are both compelled and constrained by the love of Christ. Both of those points are made in the New Testament. And we are to be agents of both grace and truth. You could say it this way. We should live a life of convicted civility. Convicted civility. We are unwavering in our conviction, but we look for common grace and common ground with others. We live a life devoted to the Word of God, but we are also doing the work of God. But remember, it's not going to be easy the New Testament Greek word that translates the word witness is the word martyr. Fourth, part of our call in the gospel is to be culture makers. It's known as the cultural mandate from God to the crown of his creation. That would be us. That's how Paul describes us in Ephesians chapter 2. In other words, we are blessed by God so that we can be a blessing to others. Outward focused. So here's Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man, the word there is humanity. And notice he says, let us, Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God exists in community. Okay. Let us make humanity in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion that word doesn't mean dominance it means let them be trusted stewards people taking care of, of the fish of the sea the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and all over all the earth and even over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every creeping thing that moves on earth. In other words, you have this dominion. God is big C creator. He creates out of nothing. And then he gives us everything we need to be able to create out of what he's created. So we're little C creators. And the idea behind that, us being creators ourselves, is so that we can bless others. Every single one of you in this room, no matter what you're doing, whether it's a vocational career job that you're getting paid for or you're not getting paid for, a very important job of being with your kids or staying at home, whatever it is, you are called by God to be a blessing to others in whatever you're doing. I think it was Brother Lawrence who wrote and said, if you're cleaning toilets, clean them to the glory of God. Here you go. I, I know it's, it's true, though. You ever walk into a public restroom and wish somebody had cleaned the toilet? 
Okay, somebody cleans the toilet, you walk in there and it's clean. That's a blessing. Everything we do is meant to be a blessing. Now, it's all tarnished by sin now, but that's our call. The cultural mandate in Christ. And so we have to come to grips with two enduring truths. There really is common grace because we are made in the image of God and the culture really is broken because sin is pervasive. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why we're going to talk about the issues we talk about in this series. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we, we just hope and pray that your word, your son, your Holy Spirit would reign. That in reality and metaphorically, we would be on our knees before you in gratitude, in humility, seeking wisdom, seeking your will, and living by the strength and the power that your Holy Spirit gives us. Help us to be able to do that, God. Open our hearts and our minds to what you would have for us, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, which as we've taken another break in the Gospel of John, this is the night uh, that we are in the middle of, the night that he was betrayed. Jesus takes the bread that they're eating and, and he breaks it and he says, this is my body, which is for you. This was presumptively the Passover meal, nobody leading the Passover meal had ever done anything like this. But what he's saying is I'm going to the cross and it's going to break my body and I'm doing it for you so that you can be forgiven of sin and reconciled to God. And then once they had eaten, he took the cup that was filled with wine. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. Again, for the forgiveness of sin so that we might be reconciled to God, redeemed from our sin, put back in our right place, not our rightful place, but our right place. He does that for us. And so for more than 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been doing this Lord's Supper, this communion ever since. And so we come together now to the Lord's table. We have the kits on these tables over here. You come up the middle aisle, we'll start front to back. We have one more song to sing and you can sing as you're coming up, pray as you're coming up. Take the elements back to your chair. Take them when you're ready to and if the Holy Spirit leads you then to stand and to sing with us or to sit and pray and contemplate whatever it is that you need. Again, we'll have people standing in the wings. If you want to ask some questions, you can go and see Andrea back at uh, the connect desk but what we're doing here is, is a sacrament something that Jesus calls us to do and the reason we're called to do it is so that we can proclaim his death which is for our good until he comes again and ushers in the new Jerusalem so let's do that now Great your affections are for 
Amen. Praise God. Thank you for being together to worship the Lord uh, today and to take communion together and receive the word. Our benediction comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.